Elizabeth Hernandez is a journalist at the Denver Post. It's a job she had always dreamed of, even though she knew the industry could be unstable. But shortly after she started at the paper as an intern, management called staff into the auditorium. They told them there were going to be cuts. I remember people started crying and immediately the, the room just changed so much and I just felt so scared. Elizabeth survived the layoffs and was able to finish her internship. And later, she joined the Denver Post full-time. But a few years after that, in 2016, another round of layoffs came. This time, Elizabeth was not spared. She spent the next two years working other jobs before she applied once more for a gig at the Denver Post and was rehired in 2018. But then, only two weeks later, the reporters were called into the auditorium again. And immediately, everyone knows what that means. Like, that's not a good meeting. Everyone knows that that means reductions, and it's just like immediate chill in the room and worry and everyone kind of looking around. But Elizabeth was optimistic. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. We all were trying to think, maybe it's just buyouts, you know, maybe it's three layoffs, like just trying to think of what the scenario could be in our editor said 30, and I just burst into tears. That was almost a third of all the reporters on staff. Again, how is this happening again in such a large number? It just felt incomprehensible. Elizabeth sat there processing the news while a friend comforted her. I was just so distraught and was kind of crying into her shoulder And one of our photographers, who was kind of off to the side, I think, snapped a a photo of the room. In that moment, completely inadvertently, Elizabeth Hernandez became the poster child for the death of local journalism in America. You see, that photo of Elizabeth crying as the layoffs were announced got picked up by the New York Times, CNN, the Washington Post, all kinds of outlets. Ironically, even though she was spared another layoff this time around, She found herself in the center of the coverage. It was a very surreal moment, but we really wanted publicity about what was going on. So it was kind of like this double-edged sword of, I really don't want to be the picture of the downfall of local news, but also, like, if that helps galvanize this story, like, so be it, I guess. In the last two decades, few industries have suffered a downturn quite as stark as local journalism especially small and mid-sized newspapers. All over the United States, more and more communities are losing their most important source of local information, creating what are sometimes called news deserts. At the same time, a small group of hedge funds and investors are swooping in to buy these businesses, strip them for parts, and make a quick profit. In this episode, we're going to look at the economic forces eating holes in coverage across the U.S. and follow one journalist as she tries to fight back. I'm Omar Lakad. This is Without. My name is Liz Bowie. I started as a reporter for a small daily newspaper on the eastern shore of Maryland. And I was just interested because it seemed as though it was a world that allowed me to learn every single day something new and to have a fresh approach every day. Welcome back. For 35 years, Liz Bowie worked as a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, the same paper that once employed her husband and her mother. 
Liz said her mom loved her time at the Sun until she was made women's page editor, which apparently she found very dull. But that was the role for women back then. The Baltimore Sun is, in a lot of ways, legendary. Founded almost 200 years ago, it's the most important paper in Maryland. In its heyday, it did a lot of international reporting, despite being in a mid-sized American city. Also, it's the inspiration behind the fictional newspaper in the last season of The Wire, so there's that. The details, Miss Gutierrez, Baltimore Sun, God still resides in the details. But back to Liz Bowie. I called her up because the Baltimore Sun is one of those papers that has gone through a bout of local journalism malaise, struggling for years before a hedge fund finally came along and bought it up. To get a sense of how the sun has changed, and this is a change that a lot of reporters at mid-sized dailies will be intimately familiar with, it's worth considering what the paper was like when Liz started her career there. When I joined the sun in 1986, there were more than 400 journalists, eight foreign bureaus, a really hefty, good-sized Washington bureau, somebody in New York, somebody in San Francisco, and there was a very hefty metro staff and another huge staff covering the counties around Baltimore. But 35 years later, there were less than 80 journalists, down from 400. Nobody in Washington, D.C., Nobody really covering the uh, surrounding counties in an aggressive way. Even the physical office space went through a similar kind of transformation. When Liz joined The Sun, the newsroom was so large, she actually couldn't see all the way to the other side. But by 2021... You could see every single person in the newsroom and shout to them. I mean, it's so diminished. It's kind of like a, the old frog in the rising, uh, the rising hot water. I think people have lost a sense of what used to be the case, of what you would know civically. It can be difficult to fully grasp how much original reporting we've lost since the height of American journalism. Ken Doctor is a former news analyst, and he says that in the 1950s, the average American household received more than one newspaper a day. Literally, more than one paper per household because there are morning and afternoon papers. That means for many people, every day, they'd wake up in the morning, have their cigarette-flavored coffee or whatever the hell they drank in the 50s, and grab the paper. And then later, when they came back from work, there'd be another paper waiting for them. But about 20 years ago, newspapers' profits got rocked by the rise of the internet. Year after year, they lost more and more money, and began this cycle of cutting budgets to the bone. There is so much less original journalism being done, and in terms of the amount of content, the number of stories that people know about their area. In a way, we've gotten used to going without local news. People don't know what they're missing until you provide it, which is just fascinating. In the past, journalism made a good portion of its revenue from advertising. The internet changed all of that. Now there are things like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, which essentially decimated traditional classified ads. Then the Twitters, now known as X, and Googles of the world started going after the news business itself, becoming for many people the go-to source of information, even though that information is still originally collected and written up by traditional news outlets. Only difference is, 
Now these tech companies are taking a huge cut of the advertising money. I used to work as a reporter early on during the rise of Google and its ilk. At one paper, an executive told me that we had quickly started to garner as many eyeballs on the web as we did through our print product. Problem was, for advertisers, one print reader was worth about seven web visitors. And sure, the rise of the internet and the collapse of certain kinds of advertising, this stuff has hurt a lot of industries. But what you lose when a local paper starts to fade away is different. Because a local paper isn't just another business. It serves a specific purpose. For example, Liz Bowie and I got to talking about the difference between quick turnaround journalism, where a reporter is expected to shoot video and record audio and file five different stories a day to the website, and the kind of reporting that tends to be remembered where maybe you have a city hall reporter who doesn't file a damn thing for months because they're too busy digging into something, but then they finally find something, something really big. And before you know it, two months later, the mayor's resigned and somebody wins a Pulitzer. Um, That in fact happened. (laughs) (laughs) Did it really? (laughs) No, it's true. Liz was on a team of Sun reporters that won the Pulitzer in 2020 for uncovering fraud committed by Baltimore's then mayor. Catherine Pugh. If you've never heard about this before, strap in. It is a wild story. It all started when reporters learned that Mayor Pugh was getting very large contracts from the University of Maryland. And what was the money for? Children's books. The mayor was writing children's books. Um, Very poor quality children's books. (laughs) And it turned into quite a... um, elaborate scheme. They're they're called Healthy Holly. Hi, I'm Healthy Holly. I want to remind you that exercising is fun and healthy. What you eat also makes you healthy. The mayor published four of these books before anyone noticed. The Baltimore Sun started the investigation in March, and by May, Mayor Pugh had resigned. Disgraced former Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh was silent as she left court following a guilty plea in a massive corruption scheme that forced her out of office. Investigators say Catherine Pugh was paid nearly $800,000 for copies of her self-published Healthy Holly children's books, even though there were multiple errors in the books, like the word vegetable spelled vegetal. And without the son's aggressive coverage of that story, you know, a corrupt mayor would have stayed in office. And a lot of really bad children's books would have been written. (laughs) This whole story, as weird as it is, demonstrates what we stand to lose if local journalism goes away. This kind of work is really important, but it's also time-intensive. It takes a lot of labor and a lot of money to keep the lights on. It's very difficult for a community to make educated decisions about which way to vote, which way to a community should spend its money, and who it should elect. Unless you have a really aggressive news organization, you you can go on the internet and do a search, but if there's no news reporting that's taken place, you can't find the answers. It's just not there. In November of 2019, the Baltimore Sun's slow, steady decline finally hit an inflection point. There was enough blood in the water that a hedge fund came along looking to buy the paper. That hedge fund's name is Alden Global Capital, one of the most aggressive buyers of small and mid-sized papers in the United States. 
And for a lot of journalists who've seen what this company does once it buys up those papers, Alden Global Capital are the three scariest words in journalism. When we come back, Liz Bowie learns that Alden is coming for the Baltimore Sun. That was a really bad month. That's after the break. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. As soon as former Baltimore Sun reporter Liz Bowie heard the name Alden Global Capital, she knew her paper was in trouble. You see, Alden has a reputation among journalists. And to understand why that's the case, you need to understand what Alden is and what it does. I think at its heart, uh, Alden Capital is just a money manager and a hedge fund. That's Douglas Arthur. He's an analyst who covers stocks in the media sector, including companies like the New York Times. He says hedge funds like Alden tend to swoop in because the financial picture for small and mid-sized papers is so bleak that there's a chance to buy up all kinds of assets for a real bargain. Because there are so few buyers in the industry, it creates this vacuum. And Alden comes in and sees an opportunity to buy something very cheap, strip the assets, cut the costs, and they, they, they own it for a very cheap price. This strategy has made Alden the second largest newspaper owner in the United States by circulation. They view themselves as the savior. The outside world views them as capitalistic opportunists uh, taking advantage of, of, of failing, a failing industry. We reached out to Alden for comment, but they didn't get back to us. But it's not really even the newspaper per se that hedge funds like Alden are generally interested in. It's everything that a newspaper has come to own over the years. That's where the money is. Newspapers have been in various towns and cities for, you know, 80, 90 years. A lot of these papers are old established businesses. They own real estate, they own printing presses, they have contracts and relationships in their communities. There's a lot of value there for someone willing to look under the hood and put a number on it. What you've seen with Alden is they come in they, and they liquefy everything. They sell the real estate, they outsource printing, they outsource back office. And then comes the inevitable round of layoffs. After round of layoffs, after round of layoffs. Until, Douglas says, you'll have maybe one reporter covering the state capitol for a chain of eight newspapers. They figure out ways to cover the news in a very efficient, not necessarily reader-friendly way, but efficient for them, and they liquefy all the hard assets. Despite owning the Boston Herald, the Denver Post, the East Bay Times, and many other papers, Alden is not beloved by journalists. If you had a downtown printing plant with 
executive offices and a journalist room, that's gone. You'll, you'll, you'll be operating out of a storefront in a mall. So that, more or less, is the future that people like Liz Bowie feared for the Baltimore Sun. As soon as she found out that Alden Global Capital was interested in buying the paper, she knew she had to act. I had talked over the years with several foundation leaders who I knew were interested in trying to get the sun back um, into local ownership. And so, in November of 2019, she reached out again. I called them and I said, okay, this is my 911 call. You know, this is the end if Alden gets us. We started meeting um, secretly in a downtown hotel in Baltimore early in the morning. They decided to launch a campaign called Save Our Sun. Former and current Sun reporters like sports writer Ken Rosenthal and Sarah Koenig of the Serial Podcast recorded messages of support. One thing I try to teach my kids is the importance of a strong local paper. Uh, so this message is to the board of Tribune Publishing. Please return the Sun to local ownership and a robust staff that can keep doing the work a newspaper should do. Please, please, let the sun stay vital, let it stay local, let it be run as a nonprofit. Thank you. In time, the Save Our Sun campaign gathered about 7,000 signatures petitioning against the sale to Alden. The foundation reached out to Stuart Bainham Jr., a Baltimore philanthropist and chairman of the Choice Hotels chain. They asked him to buy the paper and run it as a nonprofit. At first, he tried to buy just the Baltimore Sun, but that fell through. Then he tried to put together an offer for all of Tribune Publishing, which also owned the Chicago Tribune and the New York Daily News. Bainham pledged $200 million and brought other people on board to chip in the rest of the money. This was it. If Bainham's deal didn't go through, Alden would be the last buyer standing. It didn't go through. Um, and Alden won. Tribune investors voted to approve a $633 million sale of the Baltimore Sun, the Chicago Tribune, and several other newspapers, all to Alden. Just like that, one of the most well-known mid-sized papers in the country became the property of an investment firm. It was really just heartbreaking if you were in the center of it, and you knew that, you know, one hedge fund could essentially destroy what was left of the vital newspapers in our communities. It was really horrible when the sale went through, um, and I was really demoralized. I was just heartsick because I didn't feel I could continue um, working for the Sun anymore, and I put 35 years of my life into this institution, and I really care about it. Um, I still care about it, but I felt that I had to move on um, because I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't be there to see the institution I love just picked apart. I couldn't do it. But Liz didn't leave journalism. In fact, her current gig is an example of one of the few areas of optimism in an otherwise battered industry. When we come back, we'll ask if it's possible to create a new model of local journalism that can survive the economic onslaught. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. 
Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Something we've seen over the last several years is a wave of reporters and journalism industry executives creating new startups, basically building new local media outlets from the ground up. It's an attempt to save an industry from basically disappearing into the wallets of hedge funds or just disappearing entirely. After Alden bought the Baltimore Sun, Liz Bowie was deeply dejected. But then another opportunity came along. Stuart Bainham, the hotel tycoon who had failed to buy the Sun, decided to put about $50 million of his own money into a brand new digital news outlet called the Baltimore Banner. Liz was offered a job as an education reporter, and she took it without hesitation. My last day at the Sun um, was a huge relief. It felt as though I had been carrying this burden around with me, and I just I took off the the rocks that I've been carrying in my backpack for years. I was so relieved. The banner has been, has met every expectation. Um, It's been the most exciting job I've had in my career. It's like the old days of journalism, except maybe better. One of the problems new startups have is that almost every avenue to financial stability has some kind of speed bump. Find a rich person to fund your operation through philanthropy? Maybe, but there are only so many rich people. And while they might go out and buy the Washington Post every once in a while, not enough of them are interested to make this a sustainable model across the industry. Well, how about government funding? Treating news as a vital civic service we should all be paying for. Okay, but then there's the small problem of conflict of interest. Newspapers spend a lot of their time holding governments to account. It doesn't exactly look great if the same government is keeping the newsroom lights on. All that said, sometimes new startups do find a way to make it work. Liz Bowie isn't shy about saying the banner wants to go head-to-head against the sun. She thinks that kind of competition is very healthy for community. But what the banner isn't trying to do is become what the sun was in its heyday, with national and international correspondents and bureaus all over the country. The focus here is exclusively on the local community. I think the Baltimore Banner is trying a new model that we hope will succeed and can become a national model for how to do local news um, in mid-sized cities. And here in broad strokes is how the model works. You cover your backyard, you live off subscriptions, which at the Banner costs something like 160 bucks a year, And then you supplement that with special events like conferences and any donations you can convince rich folks to shell out. Liz estimates the banner needs something like 75 to 100,000 subscribers and about 2 to 3 million a year in philanthropic support. And we hope that those 
different revenue streams will be enough to support a newsroom of about a hundred journalists. And I think that is the bare minimum that's needed to cover our region. Again, no guarantees of success here, but it's something, an attempt to keep local journalism from going extinct. And Liz is optimistic, cautiously optimistic. I guess for the last year and a half, I've been wary and concerned and anxious that we can't make this work. But in the last two months, I've been really encouraged. I I actually think that the banner's going to succeed. Um, we've started to see readership really rise quickly. Our subscriber numbers are up. Um, they're above the target that we'd hoped for by the end of this year. We're beating expectations on the advertising revenue. I, I kind of am hopeful. I mean, I'm not completely convinced yet, but I think it could work. It's pretty easy to think of the Baltimore banners of the world as having pretty limited appeal outside of their communities. But what happens in those communities is a real bellwether for the civic health of every community, of the country as a whole. One of the very real dangers of going without local journalism is that the thing you lose is a negative space. It's impossible to quantify. Corruption, discrimination, plain old incompetence. Local journalists spend their lives exposing this kind of stuff. Local journalists like Elizabeth Hernandez at the Denver Post, who five years ago became the inadvertent face of the industry's malaise. These journalists sure as hell don't do this for the money or the job security. They do it because it matters to them. And it should matter to all of us. It's different because I live in this community. Like, I live in Colorado, and so the issues that I'm covering matter to me. They're important. I care about the school board election, and I care about, you know, the mayoral race and all of these things because, like, this is my community, and I want things to work. Most of the national stories you're seeing originated locally somewhere. I don't know what national news would be without local news. Who knows what kind of stories don't get covered? What kind of corruption or wrongdoing never see the light of day? How many mayors are out there writing garbage children's books with ill-gotten grants? Are there more pressing issues facing us today than the death of local journalism? Absolutely. But without local journalism, How do we even know what those issues are? Once that local news is gone, we just don't know what we won't know. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. And this episode is produced by Kendra Hanna with editorial support from Abby Fentress Swanson and Emil Klein. Fact-checking is by Daniel Rudzinski, and production support comes from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners, and our research is by Sarah Mathis. Thanks so much for listening. This is the last episode of the season, but we'll be back in 2024. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ha 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 